All right. Praise the Lord. We're, we're glad you all are back. Um, we are now going into our second study. For those of you who may not have been here for our first study where we talked about how close is close, we were simply talking about how we see that we really are living in the end times. Um, and therefore, God wants to show us something very, very powerful from his word so that we can know how to live practical Christian lives day by day by God's grace. Um, once again, we're going to go ahead and we're going to start with a word of prayer. And then we're going to begin. It's my habit to kneel, brothers and sisters. You're always welcome to kneel with me. You don't have to, but it's my habit to do so. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are once again thankful, Lord, for the privilege and the opportunity to study your word. We are thankful that you are teaching us how we can live practical Christian lives day by day, even in the midst of living in the very last hours of Earth's history. We pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit through the early and latter rain, that we might truly understand your work. And Father, we pray that as we behold Jesus and see where he is, may we be with him also. This is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to let you know that they just put this up here. Um, if you do have questions, because we're going to have a question and answer session, We'd like to have you, for now, you can just tear a piece of paper out of your notebooks and you can go ahead and write down your questions and you can put it right here in this box and that way we can make sure all questions are addressed. So we want to go ahead and let you do that. Um, I'm going to ask you all a question. The purpose of the plan of salvation, what say ye? Why, why do you think God has given us the purpose of the plan or what really is the purpose of the plan of salvation? These might sound like very elementary questions, but you'd be amazed. Sometimes we forget the simplicity that we find in Christ. So what would you say? To save us from sin. To save us from sin. Yes. Good answer. So we can be with him again. Yeah. So we can be with him again. Let's go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to notice what the Bible says, and we're going to start at verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 18. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to see what God's word says. So that way we can just rightly understand, Lord, what is it that you're saying to us so that way we can make sure we rightly understand your word of truth. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. Listen to what the Bible says. It says, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of what? reconciliation. God wants to reconcile us to himself. And then we are given. Once we are reconciled, we, once we come back to God and we are connected with God, then we are better equipped now to be an instrument of reconciliation to others. It's hard to connect somebody to somebody you don't know. I don't know if you ever tried that before. But if you don't know the person, it's very difficult for you to try to get somebody else to know the person. But when you have the connection, then it's a lot easier to do that. Would you agree? All right. So then, therefore, that, impl that implies something. If we are being reconciled to God, then that means that at some point in time in our walk of life, we were what? Separated. separated. What was it that separated us? Sin. sin. And where in the Bible do we know that sin has separated us from God? Isaiah 59, 2. Let's go to Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 59, starting at verse 2, God helps us to see why we were separated from him. And this is the reason why there's a ministry of reconciliation. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, we'll start at verse 1, then we can go ahead and take it down to verse 2. In Isaiah 59 and verse 1, the Bible says, let's read it together. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Thank God for that. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But what's the problem? It says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The mission, the purpose of the plan of salvation is that we might be reconciled to God. And the only way we can be reconciled to God is that the thing that separated us 
from God must be removed. Does that make sense? If we are going to be reconciled from, to God, we have to, we have to accept the fact that therefore, at some point in time in our lives, and perhaps even now, we are not with him. We are separated. But the goal of God is that we might be reconciled, which means that we have to remove the thing that separated us from him. That's the only way. I mean, does that make sense? Imagine it this way. Husband and a wife. Husband and a wife, you know, they have a, a, a happy marriage. They have children. And let's say it's a husband and wife in the church. And then one day, one of the spouses gets weak. And that spouse commits adultery. That's a bad thing, isn't it? It's a terrible thing. Well, listen to this. The spouse comes to the other spouse and confesses and says, look, you know what? I committed adultery. I've, I've been with another person. But I'm coming to you and I'm asking you to forgive me and so on. And, you know, I want to get a new start on life. Well, that spouse makes the decision to say, okay, I'll accept you back into the relationship. Now watch this. Follow me on this story because I need, I need your input. Follow me on this story. Here it is. The spouse says, yes, you can come back home and you can, we can go ahead and try to rebuild this marriage. The other spouse says, great. What I'm going to do is since we have a basement in the house, I'm going to let the other person that I committed adultery with, I'm going to have them come and live with us for a little while. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend three days a week with the other person so I could wean them off of the relationship and I'll spend four days with you. If you were that other spouse, how many of you would go for that? Any takers? Nobody, right? All right, no, let me ask you the question again. The person says, all right, fine, no three days. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll spend one day a week with the other person and I will spend six days a week with you. If they made an arrangement like that, would that be a better arrangement? No. Would you agree to that arrangement? No. They said one day a week with the other party, six days with you. That wouldn't work, huh? No. Okay. Let's say the person comes back and they say, well, listen, I'll spend six days, 21 hours with you and only three hours with the other person. Would that work? Would you accept that? Would anybody go for that one? Okay. Hey, I mean, you got six days, 21 hours. I mean, you got the majority of the time. So you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even accept three hours with the other party. How many of you would agree that you would say to your spouse, dear, if there's any hope for our marriage and for reconciliation, it is going to have to be all or nothing. How many of us would agree that if you were going to try to work things out in your home, that you would let that spouse know the only hope that we have for reconciliation, true reconciliation, is all or nothing? How many of us would say that's us? That's us? Brothers and sisters, so it is with Jesus. There are many of us who are trying to negotiate with God and are trying to say, Lord, three days a week, my darling sin. But I'll give you four days of holiness, righteousness, good Christian music, true worship, Bible study, and the work of evangelism. And God is saying, won't do. Some of us are trying to go back to God and we're saying, okay, Lord, okay, fine. Give me one day a week with my darling sin. And I'll give you six days, holiness, righteousness, good Christian music, Bible study, evangelism, true worship. God is saying, won't do. And some of us have the nerve to go to God and say, Lord, okay, here's my final offer. Six days, 21 hours, holiness, righteousness, Bible study, true worship, and all these other things, but give me at least three hours with my darling sin. And God is saying, dear child, the same way you have enough wisdom to see that an earthly marriage could never succeed with an agreement like that, God says, how much the more a heavenly marriage? And God is saying to you and I today, 
all or nothing. So therefore, the purpose of the plan of salvation is to do exactly what it states in Matthew 1.21. And they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, which means the sin has to be removed. Sin must be removed. There will be no hope of a reunion with Jesus Christ if we cannot have our sins removed from our lives. There is no way in the world that you can have a clean sanctuary unless God has a clean people. And I'm going to show you that from the Bible. God understood this issue, therefore he takes us to the book of Exodus chapter 25. God understood this issue and he understood, listen, I got to get my people to understand the true meaning behind the plan of salvation. Therefore, we go to the book of Exodus chapter 25. The children of Israel just came out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And here they are. They now have gotten to a point where they were reeducated upon the Ten Commandments. And then shortly thereafter, they were given some statutes and judgments to help expand on the Ten Commandments, make the Ten Commandments practical, make it plain. And then God wanted to reveal his ultimate desire right here in Exodus 25 and verse 8. The Bible says in Exodus 25 and verse 8, and if you're there, say amen. Bible says, and let's repeat it together, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God said, let them make me a sanctuary because the highest height of the experience between the creation and the creator is when God can dwell in us. The word among literally means in. So when God said, let them make me a sanctuary, he was actually saying that I may dwell in them. I want to read this quote to you from the book of Education, page 36. In the book Education, page 36, the Spirit of Prophecy says, it says, but the people were slow to learn the lesson. Talking about the Ten Commandments. When the Ten Commandments was given, it says, the people were slow to learn the lesson. It says, accustomed as they had been in Egypt to material representations of the deity and these of the most degrading nature, it was difficult for them to conceive of the existence or the character of the unseen one. Do you understand what their problem was? It's kind of like the same problem we have today. We were living in the world. We were doing the things of the world. We were fornicating. We were lying. We were cheating and stealing or whatever it is we might have been doing. We were living worldly because we were in the world. Then we come into Christ. We accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We come into this blessed movement called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. High and holy principles are set before us, and it's hard for our carnal minds to understand who this God is and what he's trying to accomplish. Children of Israel went through the same thing as they were coming out of Egypt, because they were used to doing a lot of stuff as well. Well, watch this now. God says, in pity for their weakness... God gave them a symbol of his presence. Let them make me a sanctuary, he said, that I may dwell among them. It says, but this ideal they were in themselves powerless to attain. It says, the revelation at Sinai could only impress them with their need and helplessness. Another lesson, the tabernacle, through its service of sacrifice, was to teach the lesson of pardon of sin and power through the Savior for obedience unto life. The sanctuary God gave to his people to be a symbol that he might reveal himself to us in a way that is more magnified and more deep than any other way that God could reveal himself to us. The sanctuary was a very, very powerful instrument in the hands of God to reveal himself to a dying world. This is the reason why we exist today. Did you know that there was seven? Did you know there was seventh day Sabbath keeping people before the Seventh-day Adventist church came into existence? You know that, right? So, you know, because you ask people, what's the purpose of the Seventh-day Adventist church? To tell everybody about the Sabbath. It's like, that's the case. God could have just continued working through the Seventh-day Baptist. He could have continued working through the Seventh-day Church of God. Why did God raise up the Seventh-day Adventist church? What is our contribution to Christianity? And quite honestly, brothers and sisters, our contribution to Christianity is to complete that which has been started with others. We are giving the full picture 
of the plan of salvation through the sanctuary. The sanctuary message. The sanctuary message, let me read something to you from the book Great Controversy, page 488. I want you to think about this. In Great Controversy, page 488, it says the subject of the sanctuary, I want you to listen to this. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Now, I need you to understand that this is not the commentary of a little old lady who lived in the 1800s. This is what Revelation 19.10 calls the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. So in other words, this is Jesus talking to us. And Jesus is saying to you and I, the subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. You and I should be as familiar with the message of the sanctuary as you are with your first and your last name. You know your name, don't you? If you don't, it's on your chest right here. (laughs) God wants you to be that familiar with the sanctuary message. But not in its theoretical sense. Remember that quote I gave to you in the last session, volume 5, page 81? That last quote I gave you? The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. Did you know that she says all who, in that same page, she says all who have assumed the ornaments of the sanctuary but were not clothed with Christ's righteousness will be seen in the shame of their own nakedness. There are many of us who understand the ornaments of the sanctuary. Oh, the table of shoe bread was right here. And the, the altar of sacrifice was over here. And the candlesticks was over here. And the altar of incense is over here. And the Ark of the Testimony is over here. And inside of the Ark was the Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of stone. We know the ornaments. But you can still be naked. You can still be unclothed. And we can still be lost. So therefore, the last thing I want to do in this session is to simply give you the intellectual understanding of the sanctuary. But what I want to do by the grace of God is give you the heart of the sanctuary so that you might really see how this sanctuary message that God has given to us can cause a transformation in your life. It says, John chapter 14. John the 14th chapter. In John chapter 14, let's learn something about Jesus. In John chapter 14, I want you to notice what the Bible says. We're going to start at verse 6. John 14 and verse 6, Thomas is asking Jesus a very important question. Jesus is making it known, you know, I'm going to, you know, you'll you'll be able to see the Father. And Thomas is saying, well, Lord, verse 5, Thomas saying, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? So Thomas wants to know, what's the way to get to God? What's the way? And Jesus responds in that very first sentence, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. You want to know how to get to God? Jesus says, I am the way. I'm going to show you right now why there's so much confusion in the world of Christianity today. Thomas was asking the question most of us ask today in the world, not just in the Adventist church, in the world. People want to know, how do I get to God? How do do I make the connection? Here I am, I'm trying to live day by day, and all I am is beaten up by the devil. Every time I try to live a righteous life, a holy life, I fall into temptation and I give in to sin. That is my story. And that's what people are saying right now. They're saying, how, how do I get to God? How do I finally get to the point that I can have an experience with Jesus that's real? People are asking that question. Do you think that's a legitimate question? I think it's a very legitimate question. Because some of the highest professors in the church today still don't know the answer to that question. But Jesus answered it. He said, I am the way to the Father. He said, no man can come unto the Father but by me. I'm the way. Now watch this. If Jesus is the way to the Father, then I think I know why there's so much confusion in Christianity. Go to Psalm 77. In Psalm 77, we get a clue now. If Jesus, if Thomas is like you and I, We want to know the way to get to the Father. Then Jesus goes ahead and he says, I am the way to the Father. Then maybe we can now have a clue of why there's so many today in the world of Christendom that don't know how to get to God. 
And it's found right here in Psalm 77 and verse 13. If we have any extra Bibles, I'm going to ask that someone, if someone can get some extra Bibles, we'll make sure everybody has a Bible so we can all read together and we can study together. So that way, because the last thing I want you to do is listen to the opinion of a man. My words mean nothing. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, the Bible says, Cursed be the man that puts his trust in man and maketh flesh his arm. The last thing I want is for anybody to get a curse. Don't trust what I say. Don't trust what any man says. But what we want to do is trust in the Lord and put our hope in him. So here it is, the Bible says in Psalm 77 and verse 13. And if you're there, say amen. Let's read it together. The Bible says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Did you catch that? Did you just catch that? Do you know that you just found a piece to the puzzle of why there's so much confusion in the world of Christianity today? You just found it. Thomas says, Lord, show me the way to God. Jesus says, I am the way. And then David, the psalmist, says, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. So that if individuals do not have a clear understanding of the sanctuary, then that means they're going to have an obstructed view of how to find their way to God. And that's why you have people going on all sorts of paths, trying to find God, trying to find him through smoking, trying to find him through drinking, trying to find him through sex, trying to find him through material possessions trying to find him through homages to different places all over the world, trying to find God through their different practices and their ceremonies and all of these different things. And here it is that right there in the Bible, Jesus said, look, I am the way and I'm in the sanctuary. If you want to meet me so that you can get to the Father, meet me where? In the sanctuary. Do you understand why the sanctuary is so important? Christ is there. And where are we? We want to draw people to Jesus, Amen. So if we're going to draw people to Jesus, we have to also draw them to where? To the sanctuary. I've often wondered, I said, you know, I wonder what would happen if one day, instead of doing our typical Revelation seminars and our typical other meetings, what if one day we did the gospel through the sanctuary? I said, I wonder what that would be like. Some food for thought for you guys. Jesus is the way. Now, What's the chief lesson Jesus wants to teach us in the sanctuary? Go back to Exodus 25. Let's, let's look at it again. What is it that Jesus really wants to teach us throughout all the experiences in the sanctuary? There's an emphasis that is taught throughout the sanctuary. If we catch the emphasis, if we catch the goal, if we catch the purpose of the sanctuary, then we'll be able to understand it better, why the sanctuary is so important. We understand the sanctuary is so important because Jesus is there. That should be enough. But let's break it down even more. Look at Exodus 25 again. I want you to see what the Bible says in Exodus 25 and verse 8. Exodus 25, verse 8. What does it say? Let them make me a sanctuary that I may do what? Dwell Dwell among them. And the word among means in. God's desire is that he might dwell in us. Not simply around us. But God wants to dwell in you. He wants to make his home in your heart. Now watch this. This is deep. Go to John chapter 15. Oh, I love this. You know, sometimes when I'm studying at home, my family, sometimes they look at me like I'm crazy, especially my wife, because, you know, we're, we're together even more often than me and the children. And sometimes I'm studying the Bible, and out of nowhere, they'll just see me like, whoo, and, you know, I just get excited. And then, you know, my wife's like, what happened? <laughs> you know? And I'm just like, no, no, I, I, I said, you won't believe it. I just found out. And, you know, I mean, it's just another piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I'm sure some of you can relate to that. I mean, isn't it sweet when you study the Bible yourself? You, the Holy Spirit, and the Scripture. And you just come to these great points of Scripture. Boy, look at this. God says, I want to dwell among you, i.e., in you. Now, watch this. In John 15 and verse 5, look at what the Bible says here. Boy, I love this. The Bible says... I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that, what, abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Here goes Jesus. Watch this. God in Exodus 25, he says, look, I want you to make a sanctuary. The purpose of it is that I may dwell in you. 
Then in John 15, Jesus says, abide. To dwell somewhere, to abide somewhere, same thing. Jesus says in John 15, he says, abide in me and I in you. So here it is that when God wants to dwell among us or in us, we are in him and he is in us. And now watch the effect of what happens when God dwells in your heart. Go to 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John, the third chapter, oh, brothers and sisters, look at this. In 1 John, the third chapter, notice what happens when God dwells in you. 1 John, chapter 3. Oh, mercy, this is fantastic. John, 1 John, chapter 3, look at this. John, oh, man, this is beautiful. Start at verse 1, 1 John 3, verse 1. Watch this, look at what happens now. We're going to read it to verse 6. Verse 6 is the key text. Watch this. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Look at verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him, what? Sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. When God raised up the sanctuary... It was designed that he might dwell in you and you in him so that you would cease from committing sin. It was so that he could keep the reunion and never let it get broken up again. For what broke up the relationship between man and God? Sin. And the sanctuary teaches us how to get victory over sin by Christ dwelling in us. Do you understand why the sanctuary message is so important? Will anybody see Jesus while they're still living in sin? And what's the only way that we can overcome sin? It is through who? Christ. And where is Jesus? In the sanctuary. You got to bring him to the sanctuary. So therefore, when we cry out, help Jesus, where are you? Jesus is saying, I'm here in the sanctuary. Come meet me. Meet me in the sanctuary. Therefore, we are going to look at the three phases of the experience of the sanctuary. Because if you and I can understand, you see, now you know the goal. The goal of the sanctuary, whether it's the outer court, the holy place, or the most holy place, the goal of it all is that we might understand the plan of salvation from sin. It's the whole goal of the sanctuary. Because I'll tell you what, if you and I were to have victory over sin and have sin removed from our lives, what does that really mean we're doing? If sin is really removed from your life and you have victory over it, I'm not talking about some sin, I'm talking about all sin, then what do you really have now? What, 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 what's, the, what's the story of your life? Holy. You are holy. Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the, think about it. What is sin? The breaking of God's commandments. So if you have victory over sin, that means you're doing what now? Keeping. Keeping God's commandments, which means now, more than ever, you are counted amongst the patient saints. Brothers and sisters, I got something to share with you as it relates to those saints in the third angel's message. I have a message called health reform. I believe that's tomorrow. Health reform, the third angel and our young people. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Health reform, the third angel and our young people. Don't miss that one. Please don't miss that. God wants to give us victory over sin. The only way we can have it is through Christ. And where is Jesus? In the sanctuary. So therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the sanctuary. We're going to go ahead and we're going to take a look at some things. And we're just going to kind of 
delve through and, and take a look. Let's go to the book of Leviticus chapter 4. Now we understand what God, we're going to look at the sanctuary as it relates to what God wants to do with sin in yours and my life. And that quote from Great Controversy, page 48, I'm going to read the other half to it, half of it to you in just a moment, where it's going to really make sense to you. In Leviticus chapter 4, verse 27, we're going to do Leviticus 4, 27 to 31. And this is the work of God in the outer court. Bible says, Leviticus 4, 27 to 31. And here's what the Bible says in Leviticus 4, 27 to 31. The Bible says, And if any one of the common people sin through ignorance, while he doeth somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord, concerning things which ought not to be done, and be guilty, or if his sin which he hath sinned come to his knowledge, then he shall bring his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin which he hath sinned. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take of the blood thereof with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of burnt offering and shall pour out all the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar. And he shall take away all the fat thereof, as the fat is taken away from off the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the priest shall make what? An atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Now, in the outer court, see the picture. In the outer court, Christ shows us a beautiful picture. Jesus says, all right, you or I have fallen into sin. We've broken one of the commandments of God. One of the first steps that Jesus says is he says, number one, I says, I want you to see your sin. He wants us to recognize that we are sinners. And I know that typically, again, that disease, Laodicea, it's a horrible disease. It's worse than cancer. Because many of us still today think more of ourselves than we should. By the way, do you know why many of us think more of ourselves than we should? There's a reason for it. I pray to God that you stop doing it from this day forward if you're doing it. Go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There is a reason. Go, keep your finger on Leviticus 4. But go to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. There is a reason that many of us cannot see our own sins. And when we stop doing this, we will begin to see things in its proper light. In fact, let's go to the book of 2 Corinthians. Let's do 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll go to 1 Corinthians 10 later. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. What's the reason why some of us have a challenge even seeing our sins anyhow? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, God wants to show you and I something. It's found right here in verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Let's read this one together. This is a good text. It says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You know the biggest reason why some of us can't see our sins? We're too busy comparing ourselves to some other sinner. Sinners comparing themselves to sinners. And guess what all you're going to see? Sin. And by beholding, you become changed. No wonder we're still in sin. If we would take our eyes off of sinners and take our eyes onto the one who is sinless but tempted in all points but did not sin, then by beholding, what can happen? We can become changed into his image. We compare ourselves to each other. If I'm doing better than you, but for some reason you're experiencing certain blessings, then what will happen is it'll make me feel like I can continue in my sins and probably still experience some of those blessings like the other sinner. I'll never forget, I remember we would teach on principles of dress, we would teach on principles of diet, all these different things. We talk about lifestyle. And people will say, well, pastor doesn't do this. Elders don't do that. Deacons don't do that. And here it is, they're still experiencing the blessings, so why should I? We compare ourselves among ourselves, and when we do so, the Bible says we are not wise. You are to compare yourself to no one. When God gives you clear instruction from his word, you don't look to the left or the right to say who's following it. 
as long as it is clear and you have searched line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, once you've covered it and you can see clearly, this is thus saith the Lord, regardless if anybody's practicing it on your right or to your left, you go forward and follow Jesus. We compare ourselves to each other. And this is why we have a struggle sometimes seeing our sins because we're saying, no, but this person's a great preacher and they're doing it and it seems like God is blessing them. Surely the Lord is not bothered with these things. Remember, many a star, many a star that we have admired for their brilliancy will go out in darkness. We are not to look at other people. There's going to be a lot of shocks that's going to take place in this movement. People we're holding up in high esteem and we're ready to put them in heaven. And those will be the same ones that will turn their backs on the Lord when the crisis hits. But those who we are judging and we are saying, look at this low, poor person over here, this low individual, they're certainly not going to make it. Those are going to be some of God's greatest and shining stars. Don't compare yourself to other people. In the outer court, we are to see our lives compared to Jesus' life. And Jesus said in John 15, 10, he said, I have kept my father's commandments. So therefore, when we look at Christ's life, we see the goal. I, too, must keep God's commandments, and I'm going to do what Jesus did. So in the outer court, we see our sins. We realize that we need help. Remember, the title is Help Jesus. Where are you? We see our sins, and we see our need for help. Jesus says in the outer court, he says, I have opened the door for forgiveness of sins. In the outer court is where the forgiveness of sins takes place because God died for us in the outer court. When that lamb was slain on the altar, it was just like in John 1, when John said, behold, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So therefore, type, the outer court, lamb slain on the altar. Anti-type, Christ on the cross. There's a deeper application to that, but we'll go to that in another one. But type, Christ dying. Type, the lamb on the altar. Anti-type is what? Christ dying on the cross. Type, lamb dying on the altar. Anti-type, Christ dying on the cross, the fulfillment of that example. Well, what was it that happened next? After the door has been opened and now forgiveness of sins is available to you and I, what was it that would happen next? Well, let's go to the book of Leviticus chapter 4 again. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. You see, what would happen is the priest... Well, let's go ahead and look at Leviticus 4 and then we'll we'll, we'll talk about it. In Leviticus 4, look at verses 5 to 7. Here it is, the lamb has just been killed. And who did the lamb represent? Jesus Christ. Now, look at what happens next. When literally the lamb is laid on the altar and its neck has been cut and the blood is pouring from the animal, look at what verse 5 says happens next. It says in verse 5, And the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. So catch the picture. Here it is. You got this lamb. Lamb laid on the altar. That lamb should have been you and I. We should have died for our sins. The wages of sin is death. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God in love represents that lamb, Jesus Christ. He died the death we were supposed to die. And when he died, notice what happens. The priest comes, catches the blood that's spilling from the killed animal. And then he goes to the tabernacle of the congregation, which in terms is also the holy place. Look at what happens now. It says, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood. How many times? Seven times, which means complete. You know, the number seven constantly refers to completion. It says seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary and the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord. Where's the altar of incense? But which part? 
Holy place. Very good. It says, And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So catch this now. The priest takes the blood. And then he takes the blood and he goes into the holy place now and he sprinkles it seven times against the veil. Well, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? There's two very important points that I want you to see. Most important point that I want you to see, number one, question. Did the plan of salvation finish at the cross? I heard two no's. Did the plan of salvation finish at the cross? No. Guess what most of the world believes? The plan of salvation finished at the cross. The reason we know this not to be so is because of right here in the sanctuary. In the sanctuary, what, what part represented the, the cross? Outer court, holy place, or most holy place? Outer court. outer court. This is where the lamb was killed. So here it is on the outer court, that represented the cross. But if that was the end of the plan of salvation, there'd be no purpose for the priest to go into the holy place and do this other thing with sprinkling the blood of the veil. Clearly, there was a continuation of the plan of salvation. Now, let me make it nice and plain. In the book, Great Controversy, page 489. The book, Great Controversy, page 489, here's what it says in nice, clear, plain language. It says, the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. It says, by his death, he began that work, which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. So where is the completion of the plan of salvation going to take place, on earth or in heaven? In heaven. Amen. So here it is, the priest goes into the holy place now, and he sprinkles the blood seven times on the veil. What's the significance of that? You see, in the outer court is where the door was opened that we can now be forgiven for our sins. In the holy place, Christ does something else. Go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4. What time was this class supposed to end? 45? Good, so we got 15 minutes. Good. Romans 4, 7. Let's go there quickly. Romans 4 and verse 7. Notice what the Bible says. In Romans 4 and verse 7, the Bible says, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. In the outer court, the door was open that our sins could now be forgiven. In the holy place is where Christ now does a work where our sins are covered. The blood covers. Why would the blood cover our sins? Why would the blood cover our sins? Substitute, yes, but let, let's, let's bring it out. Why would the blood cover our sins? Go to Leviticus 17. Let's learn something about blood right now. I'll teach you on this on a physical level when we deal with health reform, but now we're going to touch on it on a spiritual level. Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17, notice what the Bible says in Leviticus 17, verse 11. In Leviticus 17, why is this blood so significant? Why is it that the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cover my life, cover my sins? What does it say in Leviticus 17 and verse 11? For the life of the flesh is where? In the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So therefore, when you and I come to God and we come as a sacrifice and we say, Lord, forgive me for my sins, I confess my wrongdoings. God then says, all right, I'm going to forgive you. And the blood of Christ covers our sins. And what's significant about the blood? The life of the flesh is in the blood, which means that when we are covered with blood, we are covered with whose life? The life of Christ, which means that when God sees you, he no longer sees you. He sees his son. That's why God can say in you, I'm very well pleased. He doesn't see me, the sinner. He sees his son, the saint. The covering of the blood. Now, here's what's interesting. I was teaching this with my children when we were going over the sanctuary. 
I took a pillow and I said, you know, I said, this pillow, let's say this pillow represents sin. So I took the pillow, I said, this pillow represents sin. I put it on the floor. I said, what's the pillow? Everybody said? Sin. sin. I took a red blanket and I said, okay, here goes a red blanket. I said, this is the blood of Jesus Christ. I took the red blanket and woof, covered the pillow. I said, here goes the work of Christ in the holy place, right there. I said, his life has covered your sins. And I asked my children, I said, so therefore, could the plan of salvation had ended right there in the holy place? And at first they were kind of like, well, yeah, I guess so. I said, well, let me help you out. I said, what's the purpose of the sanctuary? Class, what's the purpose of the sanctuary? So we could be with God, yes, but what's, what's, what's the purpose now? Come on, we covered it. Huh? Victory over sin. Salvation from sin through Christ. Salvation from sin through Christ. Remember, the whole purpose of the sanctuary is that God will dwell in us. And remember 1 John 3, 6. If God abides in us, we sin not. God wants to help us get victory over sin. That's the purpose of the sanctuary. So watch this. I said, now, let's see if the work is finished. Is the work finished with, with sin in the outer court just because Jesus died for us? No, it's a part of the plan. The door has been opened. Salvation is now available to me because of Jesus' death. In the holy place, when he covers it with the blood, is the work over now? Why? I asked my children. I said, children, the pillow represents what? Sin. Sin. The blanket represents the blood of Jesus. I asked my children. I said, tell me this. Can I pick up the blanket and take my sin back whenever I choose? What do you think the answer is? Yes. This is why you and I confess our sins today and do the same sin tomorrow. We take it back. The sin that was once covered under the blood of Jesus, we decided to take it back because God gives every single one of us the freedom of choice. And this is why the work of the plan of salvation could not be finished in the holy place. Imagine it this way with me. How many of us have a garbage can? Everybody got garbage? You got a garbage can in your house? Do you have a lid on top of your garbage can? I I hope you do. (laughs) What's the purpose of putting the lid on the garbage can? Okay, so you're you're trying to hold down that stench. You're trying to say, look, you know, sooner or later, this stuff's going to start smelling. You know, fresh broccoli is fresh, but, you know, you let it sit there in that bag too long, it's going to start rotten, and it's going to have a little scent behind it. So, therefore, you cover it up. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, after a while, does not the stench start to build up, even though a lid is over it? What do you have to do next? Take it out. Well, you may not put it on your shoulder, but you take it out, (laughs) and you put it where? You put it in that bigger garbage can in your backyard. Let's call your kitchen and your backyard the holy place. Here it is. You got garbage. That's what sin is. Sin is garbage. And by the way, blood has a stench. Blood does have a stench. Think about it. Blood was building up. That's why they had to cleanse it once a year. Blood was building up in the sanctuary. You can imagine the sanctuary literally would begin to stink. That's why they had to clean it at least once a year. So watch this now. Let's say... That represents our sins. We look forward to the day that usually comes at least one day a week where what kind of truck comes? That garbage truck. And when the garbage truck comes, we take our garbage and we throw it in the garbage truck and the garbage truck takes it to a far, far place away from us that we never, ever see that garbage again. That is the work of the most holy place. So therefore, we go to our final text in Leviticus, the 16th chapter. Leviticus 20, yeah, Leviticus 16. We can go to Leviticus 16. In Leviticus, the 16th chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says in verse 19. Leviticus 16 and verse 19, here's what the Bible says. The priest is now in the most holy place. And by the way, this is the high priest. And it says in verse 19, 
and he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his fingers seven times and do what? Cleanse. Cleanse it. Cleanse what? This is the sanctuary. He wants to cleanse the sanctuary. But watch this. And hollow it from uncleanness of the children of Israel. So this it that's being hollowed and cleansed is what? It's the? I'm waiting. It's the? Nope. All the blood and everything, all the sins are being brought into the? And it needs to be cleansed. So what is it that's being cleansed? The? Sanctuary. Amen. But watch this. Something else has to be cleansed. Look at verse 30. On that day shall the priest make an atonement for who? For you to do what? To cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, this tells us automatically no clean sanctuary until there's a clean people. Boy, I tell you, I was sitting at the edge of my seat last night when I was listening to Brother Gregory. Man, I tell you, I was just like, ooh, he, you know, because I was just like, he's, he's getting me there. You know, and I loved it. I said, he's, he's just preparing the minds. Because there can't be a clean sanctuary. And there can't be any latter rain unless there's a clean people. Our next session, we're going to talk about how to be clean. You see, Christ in the most holy place, he's not simply doing the work of the forgiveness of sins. He's not simply doing the work of the covering of sin. But in the most holy place, Christ is doing the final work in the plan of salvation, which is the complete blotting out of sin. This we must understand. I remember I was listening to someone and they were teaching on the sanctuary and the person said, well, when Jesus ascended into heaven at his resurrection, he went into the holy place to do the work of intercession. And I said, amen, praise the Lord, because that's right. But then he said, but since 1844, Christ moved into the most holy place to do the work of intercession. And I was like, and I remember I leaned over to my wife. I said, if he was doing intercession in the holy place, I said, why would he just keep doing the same thing in the most holy? I said, certainly there must have been another phase of the work. And brothers and sisters, the phase of the work is that Christ is not just in heaven simply doing the work of intercessing, but he's doing the final work, which is the blotting out of sin. Remember, the whole purpose of the sanctuary is to show us how we can get victory over sin. Now, you know what's powerful? Every step throughout the sanctuary experience we get victory over sin through Christ. In the outer court, he's the lamb that died. In the holy place, he's the priest that lives. In the most holy place, he is the high priest that judges. In every single phase, there goes Jesus. In the outer court, blood of the lamb. In the holy place, blood upon the altar. In the most holy place, blood upon the altar again. The blood, the blood, the blood. Christ. Throughout it all. There is never a point in time that you get victory over sin without Jesus. Never. So we don't teach legalism, and not in here. It's, it can happen, it must happen, but it's only going to happen through the power of Jesus Christ. Do you know why this is so important? Now I will finish the quote from Great Controversy, page 488. I read to you the first half. Now, by God's grace, you can better understand the second half. I started with the statement, the subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of two things. Listen to this. Of the position and work of their great high priest. So what's the two things that we need a knowledge of? The position and the work of our great high priest. Now watch this. Otherwise, now, now you need to pay attention when it says otherwise, because it means, in other words, if you don't have a knowledge of the position and work, look at what it says. 
Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith, which is essential at this time, or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. If you and I do not understand the work and the position of Jesus Christ in the most holy place, you and I will not be able to exercise the faith in the last days that we need. Now, let me tell you why. Brother Greg, I tell you, he, he, really, he really touched on some, some things. The early rain fell on the disciples not simply because of timing. It wasn't simply that 40 days passed since Christ ascended, and then here it is now, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's 50 days in total, and it's the day of Pentecost, so therefore the rain fell. No, brothers and sisters. When you carefully study the book of Acts, the book of Acts tells us that while they were in their upper room, they understood that Christ died, resurrected, and was in the holy place of the sanctuary above doing the work of intercession. Because the disciples understood the work and the position of their great high priest, and then Jesus was inaugurated by receiving the kingdom in Hebrews 5, then Jesus was glorified, the disciples were connected with Christ by faith, and the early rain fell down. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The only individuals who will receive the latter rain are those who understand the work and the position of Christ in the most holy place. Not simply to forgive our sins. Oh, no, you can go to a Sunday church and get that. Not simply to cover our sins. But this is the only movement on earth that teaches the full, complete blotting out of sins. And when we understand the position and work of Jesus Christ in that most holy place, and when our lives fall in line with what God has told us to do, which you're going to find out in the next study, we are the ones that will best be prepared for the outpouring of the latter rain. This is why. And if we and I don't have the latter rain, then there's only one other thing to get, and that's what? The mark of the beast. The latter rain, the only individuals who are getting the seal of God are those who get the latter rain. And if you don't have that, then obviously we have the mark of the beast. This is why she says it will be impossible. We need latter rain power. We're going to need a serious experience with Jesus in the most holy place that we might truly be ready. This next study that we're going to do, brothers and sisters, it's imperative that you understand it. Because while Christ is in the most holy, in his position doing his work, did you know that there was a position and a work for us? Most of us don't even know what it is. But the next study, you'll know exactly what it is. And those who are in the position and work that they're supposed to be, while Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary in the most holy place, in his position and his work, those will be the ones best prepared to receive the latter rain. And that's going to be our next study. So with that in mind, help Jesus. Where are you? Where is Christ? Where is Jesus? In the sanctuary. Where exactly in the sanctuary? In the most holy place. What's he doing? He's our judge and he's doing the work of? The blotting out of? Sins. And the only way we can have a clean sanctuary is when we have a clean people. How many of us want to be counted amongst those clean people? And let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that by faith right now, our minds are connected in the most holy place. You have taught us and you have shown us from your word where Jesus is. And Lord, because we know where Jesus is, now, Father, we have access to you, for he is the way, and thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will truly prepare our hearts for the great work and position that you have set for us, now that we understand the great work and position of Jesus Christ. May you truly be our teacher, 
And we thank you for this wonderful and awesome blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, I stopped.